Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Susanna Black Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. To kick off our repair series, we've got with us today Zohar Atkins. Zohar is a poet, rabbi, and theologian based in New York, and the host of the podcast Meditations with Zohar, and the author of the substack What is Called Thinking. He is also the author of many epic Twitter threads, and you can find him on X at, at Zohar Atkins. Zohar, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, so I kind of grew up, I grew up Jewish um, in that we did Passover and so on. Um, but it was like the most sub-reformed version of Judaism and tikkun olam, um, which I had been raised to, to think of as it means repairing the world, um, was kind of like one of the few Jewish concepts that I ran into. And my, my impression is that the way that I ran into it and the context in which I ran into it is quite different than the original context. So what is tikkun olam and um, how has it developed over the centuries, which is kind of a cheesy broad way of asking this question. Tikkun olam today is a Hebrew phrase that many Jews who know very little about the rest of Judaism have somehow clung on to because it makes for a great slogan or great copy, and that's not to diminish it. Um, but somehow it has gotten an outsized share of um, Jewish and perhaps even non-Jewish consciousness, despite the fact that in its origins, it's a very specific technical phrase that appears in the Mishnah. So a uh, book of law from compiling work from 200 BCE to 200 CE. And that in the original, um, Tikkun Olam really refers to um, interventions, legal interventions um, that are conducted for the sake of law and order and to achieve a certain outcome that the law, as it was previously interpreted, was not able to achieve. Tikkun olam is sort of a consequentialist view of law, where let's say that you have a certain law in the books, but um, that law is not producing the results that you want. So you have to do a tikkun olam and change the law. Tikkun is an interesting word. It has a lot of different meanings. We translate it in the contemporary context as healing or repairing the world, which is certainly one interpretation of the word tikkun, but in the original, Tikkun means to establish um, or to found. So a takana is an edict or a decree. And that stands in contrast to other kinds of laws which operated through precedent. So there's something um, almost like an executive order is kind of mm -hmm. how I would put it. A tikkun alam is an executive order that's done by a, a sage who has the authority to do it. And it's sort of controversial because it doesn't rely upon precedent. Can you describe what an example would be and what kinds of ends uh, they were aiming to achieve or typically? Um, it's been a while since I've looked inside at the examples, but I'm pretty sure there was this one guy who did a lot of them named Shimon Ben Shetach. Mm -hmm. um, and it had to do with social order. So for example, if people were not getting married um, because they were afraid of um, divorce law or something like this, he had mm -hmm. to change the the sort of laws around marriage and divorce to incentivize people to get married. 
So mm-hmm. it's a clear example where um, the the formalistic approach to law is leading to a bad outcome. So mm-hmm. you have to change that. You have to change the law in some way. It's in a way. I mean, um, if we contrast Judaism and Christianity, um, if the a, a Christian approach to the law being to um, constraining relative to the outcome is to abolish the law that would be a sort mm-hmm. of like pauline antinomian approach mm-hmm. the takana is like uh, almost like an emergency politics where in the name of the law um you suspend the law on the books something to that effect not to be too schmitty about it yeah i was gonna say like this is starting to sound like schmidt um yeah that's fascinating i hadn't thought of it in that way i thought of it more like equity which i guess is like a it's a similar yeah. concept listeners need need to appreciate that the, the concept of equity has so many different meanings right there's obviously equity in in the contemporary like dei sense of equity there's equity in finances and owning yeah. owning owning a piece of a company like we're talking about um when you're when the law is um in need of some kind of rectification that that's really what the equity means so the the the, it's it's almost like a an extreme measure within legal maneuvering that if you do it all the time is gonna undermine the authority of the one doing it because then Uh once you start doing an executive order then all of a sudden anyone can do an executive order and it's just Mm -hmm. a war of executive orders Mm -hmm. um but if you do it every now and then it seems like it's a good stopgap yeah. I mean, I had had sort of a higher minded view of equity in that because I'm a Platonist, I'm like, okay, well, so say the judge has justice in his soul and sees that the outcome of the law as written would be unjust. You can actually do equity. You can do some something like tikkun olam in order to create yeah. flourishing or justice or whatever you wanted to, however you wanted to put it, um, even in defiance of or in editing of the original law. Yeah. I don't think the rabbis for the most part were platonic. I don't think they thought in in abstractions that they tried to superimpose onto lived reality. I think they were pragmatic. And so mm-hmm. um, we live in a we live in a world where values are in conflict all the time and the job mm-hmm. of the judge is to use some combination of mm-hmm. erudition and good character and understanding of the principles to weigh these t- these conflicts and make the best decision given all shareholders or stakeholders mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that is always going to be in tension with the discernment of another sage and so there's kind of a proliferation of different views um both at the theoretical and at the practical level um right. but the core point about tikkun olam so if I, I should probably bury the lead here um <laughs> Contemporary people love Tikkun Olam because they think of it as revolutionary and progressive. Um, And I want to make the case, and I'm sure I'm not the only one to make the case, that the origins of Tikkun Olam are actually the opposite. It's it's a conservative Mm -hmm. measure. Um, It's of course it's 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 revolutionary as a matter of process because you're circumventing the typical legal process to mm-hmm. enact something. But in mm-hmm. terms of what you're trying to achieve, you're trying to conserve social order. And right. you're worried that the law is leading to some kind of anomie. So it's less about justice and more about just keeping society functional um, and surviving. Yeah. 
so there's different kinds of ways that different versions of this that have been you know that have been that have come in between say the original judicial version and the contemporary like social justice version like tikkun olam means you know you do the civil rights movement my theory is that what came in between was the like in the alienu the there's this messianic version of tikkun olam um so like the uprooting of idolatry and establishing or repairing the kingdom of god in the messianic age um and that i kind of think combined with like little acts of judgment is kind of where maybe you get the more um progressive because like part of you know the other kind of like aspect of Judaism that i was raised with was like the messianic age is now and the messiah is us um like often said in so many words like or we are the messiah's hands and um and I think that's probably the root by which this it came to mean like what it means in Tikkun Magazine or whatever. Does that make sense? I think within every religious tradition, there's sort of a dialectic between trying not to get it wrong and believing that you have the the mandate of heaven and need to act uh -huh. with moral clarity and urgency. And I think the rabbis, by and large, were more concerned with conservation and not getting it wrong mm -hmm. and creating a good enough world and coping with mm -hmm. exile. I see their antecedent mm -hmm. in, in the book of Deuteronomy, which is largely mm -hmm. about creating a good society. But mm -hmm. um, contrast to Leviticus, which is really about worshiping God and drawing mm -hmm. God down and centers around priests and sacrifices. And I think mm -hmm. the Kabbalists are falling more in the Levitical tradition of believing that every moment is life or death, that stakes are high mm -hmm. and you can bring God into the world or you can bring the demonic into the world. And mm -hmm. um, every, every little gesture, how you eat, how you mm -hmm. look, um decides the fate of the world and the fate of god mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so with this more theurgic high table stakes perspective um tikkun olam becomes something that every jew or even every person can affect through micro actions it still doesn't mean mm -hmm. that marching for civil rights or whatever um is tikkun olam but it opens the door to this by essentially turning every individual into a, a priest who mm -hmm. uh, who has the power to draw God into the world. And the rabbis mm -hmm. kind of presume, by contrast, I would say, that God is a little bit more of an abstraction, a little bit more distant. And what matters is studying God's law, studying God's word, and transmitting it um, in the best way that we can to others and trying to um, create godly values in the world but not necessarily to bring god himself into the world mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so um i mean i think moderns you know like not just modern jews but mm -hmm. the progressive sensibility in many ways because it's sort of atheistic also then arrogates itself divine authority and so um whereas the rabbis tended to be they were messianic in their hope for a redeemed world, but they didn't mm -hmm. live day to day like what their actions um, 
like their actions could bring them aside. I mean, it's, it's, I think they live with a lot more cognitive dissonance yeah. regarding the messianic and then moderns just like sort of throw all caution to the winds and think that if you just, um, you know, share a viral video on TikTok or something in favor of your chosen moral cause that you've brought the messiah. Yeah. Um, can you say more about what you think the two sort of understandings of Tikkun Olam say about the two sort of visions of what justice is overall? I mean, I don't, I don't think Tikkun Olam really has to do with justice. I think mm -hmm. I'm not really sure where justice comes into it. It feels like what will be interesting is tracing the origins of the concept of social justice. Mm -hmm. as a separate genealogy, and then basically mm -hmm. tracking the equivocation of tikkun olam into social justice as a really a story mm -hmm. of assimilation, whereby yep. American Jews basically descended from German Jews and the reform movement of the 19th mm -hmm. century want to posit that at a minimum, Jews are just as moral as their Protestant neighbors, and at a maximum are guiding lights for a Protestant society, like almost like yeah. trying to out Kant Kant or something. Um, yeah. But I don't think that Tikkun Olam is, is justice at all um, in, 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 mm -hmm. any of the, in any of the texts. It just depends on what is meant by justice, obviously. Mm -hmm. I mean, so certainly the use which from which justice comes and shares the root with law, in that sense, they were after justice. But I guess the question is like, um, general, generally, I think the, the rabbis were, um, they were into creating a society of good character on the one hand, and then mm -hmm. at the same time, making sure that, um, that that character like scaled or something like this. And it was probably mm -hmm. in, like, I think any attempt to try to scale character or think about social outcomes is in tension with the cultivation of character at the individual level. So mm -hmm. the rabbis themselves were probably more like virtue ethicists, but then because they uh -huh. were also social, social engineers, they, they had some uh -huh. consequentialism peppered in and like Talmud scholars kind of debate. Um, the motivations of the rabbis. I know there are people like Stanley Fish type followers who think it's all consequentialism. Um, but yeah, I, I guess um, it really just depends on how we're defining justice, I would say. Mm -hmm. In Hebrew, the word that um, that usually translates as justice is tzedek. Mm -hmm. And I think that one aspect of tzedek that the rabbis seem to care about is um, impartiality. So the the law should be the same for the rich as for the poor, um, mm -hmm. and there shouldn't be favoritism or bias. Um, the the there should be one law. It's okay to have different interpretations of the law, um, mm -hmm. and to have disagreements for the sake of heaven. But mm -hmm. uh, but barring that, I think again, like the conception of justice as articulated in that way, it's sort of more of a floor than mm -hmm. a ceiling. So progressives mm -hmm. think that justice is like implementing the kingdom of heaven on earth. And I don't think mm -hmm. the rabbis were interested in implementing the kingdom of heaven on earth. I think they were interested in um, maintaining Jewish 
connection to the Torah um, and mm-hmm. transmission and like basically just like good common sense values. But I'm not sure mm-hmm. that they thought that that was just. I think they just thought it was very good and important. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little housekeeping. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Zohar after the break. Could you talk more about just the way that these ideas, like the setting in which these ideas were developing, like assume that, you know, our listeners have very little knowledge of rabbinic Judaism, like the development of rabbinic Judaism. Yeah. Um, So I'm, I myself a rabbi and I have studied this stuff, but I'm not, I'm not an expert. Like I'm not an academic Mm -hmm. who who focuses on this period. So Mm -hmm. take everything I'm saying with some grains of salt. Um, Mm -hmm. But my, my broad view on it is that the temple was destroyed. The second temple was destroyed in the year seventy, mm-hmm. and um, since that time, there hasn't been another temple that's been active. And so, mm-hmm. with the loss of the temple, um, naturally, Judaism shifted from being a religion that focused on animal sacrifices, pilgrimage to the temple into Jerusalem, and the authority of the priest to um, to a different way of doing Judaism and a different way of constructing authority. And that transition would not have been possible if not for a bunch of forces and ideas that predated the destruction of the second temple. In some ways, the destruction of the first temple was a dress rehearsal that gave Jews, mm-hmm. you know, 400, 500 years That's to good. prepare. Yeah. Uh, if you read the, if you read the prophets, there were already, um, quite critical of various, corruptions of the temple and the priests. And so that all sort of sets the stage for a transition to rabbinic authority. But mm-hmm. um, sometimes there's a crisis, right, in history, and the, and then um, who's ever ready for the crisis is sort of um, able to run with it. And so the rabbis, mm-hmm. it's not like they were produced by the year 70. They were there before, but they really... Mm-hmm. Um, the year 70 was their opportunity. Mm-hmm. And um, and so Judaism st- basically stops being place-based, um, is, mm-hmm. is a huge part of it. It stops being sovereignty-based. There's a whole bunch of things. And so what replaces those things? Um, well, one is the idea of study as opposed mm-hmm. to, um, to physical travel to Jerusalem. So the study of the law and the study of the Torah takes a huge... Uh, it goes way up in esteem, whereas the ability mm-hmm. to conduct, let's say, public spectacular religion, a la like a megachurch, goes way down. Mm-hmm. Um, the priests were often aristocrats, so there was like a class-based um, switch where um, because of heredit- hereditary um, like in order to be a priest, you have to be the, the son of a priest. <laughs> um, right born into a priestly family, but to be a rabbi, you just had to be um, uh, a person who showed passion and devotion uh, for the text. And so basically Judaism became meritocratic as well. Um, so there are tons of shifts as a result, and all of those shifts can be called rabbinic Judaism. And essentially up until 
secular Zionism and then religious Zionism and, you know, the 19th and then 20th century, that was the dominant, um, that was the dominant classical Jewish view. I mean, there's always been sort of sects. Um, there were the Karaites who, who argued that we should interpret the law, the, the biblical law literally, whereas the rabbis disagreed with that and had their own mm. system. Um, I just interviewed Daniel Boyarin, uh, Thomas Scholar, in my podcast, and I think he would say that one of the core ideas of the rabbis is this sort of inconclusive method or attitude where we're trying to understand what God wants, but we appreciate that we're never going to get it 100% right, and thus we can, we can and should disagree with one another in good faith in an effort to get closer mm -hmm. to the truth. We should respect mm -hmm. differences so long as we understand that the people that disagree with us um, are learned and want the same kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. But there's, like in many ways, the rabbis expanded the laws of the Bible. They put certain fences and precautions around those laws. Like if you read right. Sabbath law, for example, in the Bible versus, you know, how Jews today keep the Sabbath. But then in other ways, they, they constrain the law. Like the biblical world is quite a violent one. Um, rabbinic Judaism says that a court that kills one person in 70 years is a bloody court. So, um, you know, like we're, we don't stone people to death, even though that's in the Bible, like why not? And um, anyways, perhaps one, one reason is because we don't, we no longer think that we have the same certainty or clarity or prophecy that we once did. Um, and so there's a story of like humility or diminishment in the rabbis, but maybe another is a concealed view of moral progress um, where the rabbis don't tell you this outright, but essentially they think the Bible was um, like harsh in the same way that Christians sometimes say that the, you know, God, the father and is too much judgment and not enough love and mercy. The rabbis had a similar critique, but they mm -hmm. just had a different strategy for executing on it, which was a story of continuity with the law rather than mm -hmm. discontinuity with it. Can you tell, can you describe the um from there the development of sort of Kabbalah and I mean obviously that's skipping a lot of years but like just how the what that tradition came out of and what its version of Tikkun Olam brought. Broadly speaking, the Kabbalists were mystical, and mm -hmm. while you can find mysticism in the rabbinic tradition as well, um. The goal of the mystic is first and foremost to commune with God and what is and see that it's all one or something like this. It's a kind of spiritual practice. It may or may not involve the law. For most Kabbalists mm. throughout history, it did involve quite scrupulous legal observance. Um, mm. Much later in the 17th century, Shabtai Tzvi, you know, argues that um, that the law is in, is is an obstacle to this mystical union. He was quite mm. popular, and then, and then, um, and then, at some point, breaks away from the Jewish community and is denounced by the Jewish community as a heretic. You have Jacob Frank mm. doing a similar move, um, but then you have a more sublimated or subdued version in the 18th and 19th century with Hasidic Judaism, mm. um, which de-emphasizes erudition and emphasizes instead things like ecstasy um and it's mm -hmm. more of a populist approach to mysticism where let's say you know having lachaim drink like doing a shot um dancing 
um, <laughs> that kind of thing, <laughs> meditating, um, is, a, is a better strategy for connecting to God than, let's say, uh, and I'm being a little bit glib here, that, but um, then, you know, sitting for six hours in Shiva studying the laws of how to keep kosher. Um, mm -hmm. But so all of that, all of that stuff, though, derives from Kabbalah. Um, that, that's mm -hmm. all sort of offshoots of Kabbalah. And so, um, yeah, I mean, if you read the Talmud, you can find pretty much every genre in it and every idea in it. Mm -hmm. but, um, but as a percentage, like mysticism is not really the headline. And the mm -hmm. rabbis, um, they're full of humor and they're, they're full of logic and wit, but you don't necessarily need to be a mystic to be a rabbi. For the Kabbalists, mm -hmm. like, it's all about, under, it's the science and art of the Godhead, not just understanding like what God is ontologically, but also how that maps onto the world. And everything is read through, this, mm -hmm. through that lens. Um, so how Kabbalah connects to the rabbis? I mean, big question. Some of the rabbis became Kabbalists, obviously. And according to Kabbalistic tradition, the, the founder of the Kabbalistic sort of lineage was a rabbi um, from the, mm -hmm. I believe, the second century named Shimon Bar Yochai, who is the, the purported author of My Namesake, the Zohar. Um, mm -hmm. So for, from a Kabbalistic perspective, there's complete continuity between the sages and the Kabbalists. But historically, mm -hmm. the Kabbalists are really emphasizing, like, I mean, let's just put it in sociological terms. Like, mm -hmm. there, are, there are people who are really into prayer and meditation, and that's their mm -hmm. thing. And then there are people who are more into, like, law school, right? Mm -hmm. And while it's totally possible that... <laughs> to go to Harvard Law and also read tarot uh, <laughs> uh, or do astrology or, or palm reading or whatever, um, it's not an obvious fit. So I think Kabbalah right. is just a vibe, it's a vibe shift is really how I would put it. Um, <laughs> Can you describe the way that um, Tikkun Olam is used in Kabbalah is sort of a, a third thing? Um, can you describe that? Let's talk about this word tikkun. I, I mentioned that in a rabbinic context, it really means establishing mm -hmm. or fixing and intervening. Mm -hmm. So, um, the in Kabbalah though, tikkun means repair, um, mm -hmm. and that's really where we get this concept, this modern concept of repairing the world, because it, mm -hmm. implicit in the in the idea of repairing the world is that the world is broken. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the theology of the world being broken. According to Lurianic Kabbalah, but not only mm -hmm. Lurianic Kabbalah, um, the creation of the world is not a story of a perfect God creating the perfect world, but uh, a God who, in some sense, is not able to create the world according to his own plan. Um, and for whom the creation of the world is also a kind of catastrophe and a kind of loss and a kind of calamity. And um, we can talk about why that is in all kinds of different ways, but essentially the creation of the world goes through a dialectical process where the first stage A is the thesis, stage B, mm -hmm. B is the antithesis, and stage C is mm -hmm. the synthesis. And Hegel, Hegel was influenced by Christian Kabbalah. And so tikkun refers to the synthesis, but before we get to the synthesis is the idea of the creation actually going awry in some way. And because mm -hmm. creation has gone awry, it's on us 
to work through the broken world and make it whole and in so doing make god whole um mm-hmm. so the the myth is that um god is infinite light so the neoplatonists basically the original neoplatonists just like all you know plotinus believe that god, god is infinite and emanates um into our world and just gets more diluted and diffuse but essentially our world is godly through and through um, human beings are just more concentrated in their divine uh, sort of composition than animals who are more divine than plants who are more divine than stones, but we're all divine. It's just a question of like, how mm-hmm. much divine DNA do we have? Mm-hmm. And so that's all very positive in the, in the Kabbalistic and specifically more Lurianic, uh, view, um, God is infinite but in order to create the world needs to retract from the world to make space for something which is not godly and that mm-hmm. is and that and so god creates a void and then seeks to fill the void with god's self and the problem is that when god seeks to fill the void the light of god overtakes the void and um you can tell it in different ways but shatters the void or the light is shattered as a result of the void and so this creates this experience of fragmentation of god the world is if you imagine shattered glass the world is mm-hmm. filled with the shadow with the shards of god the shards of the godhead and everything is both good and bad light and dark divine but also mm-hmm. demonic and mm-hmm. thus thus the the mystic's job is to see this is to see this complexity and intervene on behalf of god Mm-hmm. Um, to return the the shards to their original state, and so that's what Tikunolam is in a Kabbalistic context. You can see, especially if you're like a Neoplatonist, how you would get there um, from one to the other. But the ideas are so different. Do you know anything about that transition? Like, how did the Neoplatonic view become this sort of more dystopian one? Um, hmm. Well, not so much that, but. Um, like how, do, how you would get from the legal, the, like the vision of oh. legal to like, why use that phrase to describe this? Oh, I see. I don't actually know if they were consciously or unconsciously subverting the original, or if they just liked the word tikkun because it's a flexible word. It's sort of... Mm-hmm. There are just some poetic words that have a lot of meaning, and tikkun is one of those dialectical words, just mm-hmm. much like in Hegel, Aufheben means to posit, to negate, and to, and to synthesize. And mm-hmm. tikkun actually, like that word, just it has all of these antinomic meanings. So mm-hmm. it's a great word. I, I think perhaps, perhaps it's a coincidence. Huh. I don't know. I don't actually know. Uh, I, I'm sure I'm, 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 I'm probably overstating it because obviously these, these, um, the, these, these theologians were quite sophisticated, but, mm-hmm. um, and learned. So they, I'm sure they were aware of what Tikunola meant in the original. Um, but whether they were deliberately inverting the meaning or whether it was just on their mind, I don't actually know. My instinct, because I, I'm such a Neoplatonist is to be like, no, this was, this was all intended. Um, yeah, probably was <laughs> because if you look at their hermeneutics in general, they're often 
inverting and subverting sort of the plain meaning mm -hmm. of, a, of a text. So that would be consistent mm -hmm. with their general vibe. But um, I mean, again, like maybe the continuity with Shimon Ben Shatok and the rabbis is mm -hmm. is this emergency politics aspect of it, whereby the world mm -hmm. as it is just isn't working. And so it's not enough to just keep your head down and mm -hmm. do what the law says. Like you need to be an activist judge, so to say. It's like being an activist judge and being an activist mystic in order to repair the aspects of the world that aren't, that haven't gone on the way they should. Yeah, but like, just to be clear, like for most of the Kabbalists, <laughs> Um, it was mysticism layered on top of Nomian adherence. If anything, they were hypernomian. Like, you know, so you're you're still praying three times a day, but maybe your prayer takes longer because you're saying certain words with greater intention rather than just rushing through the prayers. This isn't yeah. like, um, don't follow the mitzvot, but instead go be a, a protester. Yeah, I feel like... The there's kind of like another layer that we, but probably we should um, wrap this up, but I feel like there's a whole other conversation about like the older vision of like the vision of what fixing society looks like, whether that looks like perpetuating society, helping to heal the frayed bits and keep on going versus like a, a pulling down of, um, a pulling down of unjust structures and like basically all structures and all authority are imagined to be unjust. Um, and I just, I, I feel like that change in vision is fascinating, but that's probably a whole other conversation. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Go to plow.com to learn more. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Adam Nicholson about working landscapes, sailing, Homer, and what it takes to repair a farm.